Okay. So, order of events this morning. We can talk about rest some more. Um, it does not give you license to take a nap. Um, I'm, I'm applying the sermon. <laughs> yeah. um, or we can move on to the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is our next topic on our handout. So, I'll open it up. Any questions from uh, talking about rest or work and rest together as they interrelate? Any, any questions on that? Yes. How do you know when you're resting, when you're taking advantage of the rest? It becomes an issue and not just, I'm enjoying the rest I'm doing. All right, that's a good question. The question for the tape is how do you know when you're taking advantage of the rest? How do you know when you're. Um, go to, go to uh, first Timothy. We might look at first Thessalonians as well. Uh, how do you know when you're resting too much? Because uh, I definitely think that tends to be the problem our culture and our in the West deals with. Um, I think the average amount of TV that everyone watches is like six hours a day. Um, that is true, and we're deceived. We aren't even aware of how much we watch it. Yeah, no, your list is absolutely right. Ninety percent of Americans, not, get this, ninety percent of Americans listed that they thought they watched less than the average amount of TV. It's not a joke, it's true. The point is, we, we aren't probably even realizing it. Um, and that's why really the point was just ask for wisdom. Ask for wisdom. And God promises to give wisdom. Like, I don't know the answer to that, but you know, if you ask God to give you the wisdom, and then you can do what you do in faith, I think it's up to him to tell you otherwise, if that makes sense. Um, but the other factor would be, look at what he's given you for responsibilities to do. And there are seasons of my life where things are so busy and there's imminent, immediate responsibilities that I may not go, I may go without rest for a bit. You know, um, so somebody gets sick or somebody dies or some tragedy happens or whatever. And our kid has to go to the hospital. I mean, one of our kids, well, guess what? That's what I'm doing for the next two or three days. And I don't go, well, I need to watch some TV. You know, I, I work and I'm faithful and I labor. But in normal, normalcy, you, you plan it out and you prayerfully offered up to God. But like I said, when Serena and I are at our best, we read, we pray, and then we say, hey, do you want to watch some TV? And I think when you've first gone to God for rest, and you're being faithful with the work he's given you to do, which is why these two messages sort of go together. You missed the last week's one on work. But he's got work for us to do, and you're doing it. And then I think you can, you can rest in faith, and, and I think that rest is a much more enjoyable rest, because you don't feel like you're stealing it. You know, the warning in First Timothy, though, on the other hand, though, look at this, um, one of the points from last week is there's no point in life that's ever valid to simply be full of leisure. There's no, there's no even retirement. So Timothy, in First Timothy, um, in First Timothy 5, talks about the requirements for widows. Get on the widows list. Um, and he says, verse 5, she who is truly a widow, 5-5, five, five, left all alone, set her hope on God, and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. That's the person to put on. She's over 65 years old. She's active with her time. She's praying and supplications night and day. Conversely, verse 6, but she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. And so if it's just my life, because I'm at a point where all I do is I indulge myself. I eat what I want to eat. I watch what I want to watch. I do what I want to do. Living like that is death. 
So that's why you've got to be offering it up to God, offering up to God. And, and I think he'll give you wisdom. I don't have a magic answer, but I think if you're asking him, I mean, James 1 says, if any of you lacks wisdom, I'm asking God, he'll give it to you. And Lord, is there, I mean, basically, you spend some time, Psalm 90, teach us to number our days, teach us to make those divisions. Lord, is there things you want me doing I'm not doing? And I think for some people I know, it might actually be take some more rest. For other people, it might be put the Xbox down. You know, again, I don't know God's wisdom for each and every one of us. I just know rest is an approach. Here, here's a pattern. The Sabbath pattern gives you an idea of six and one. Six and one. That's probably a good place to start ratio-wise. You know, if, if you're like, I rest 80% of the time, you're probably wrong. You know? Um, so that would be another, another pointer. Even though we're not under, I don't believe we're not under the Sabbath commandment that God has commanded that we observe one day in seven. Like I said earlier, we know just from, from human experience and economics that people work better when they're rested. You know? So um, any, any other questions with that? How do you know if you're resting too much? Um, okay. Any other questions on rest? <coughs> yes, Anna. I guess, um, like pairing with last week's sermon on work, conversely, mm-hmm. like, how do you know you're working too much? Ah, how do you know if you're working too much? Um, generally, generally, I think when people work too much, they're working in one category too much. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the problem is, am I spending too much with my vocational work and neglecting my family? Or for a student, it might be, am I working so hard on my grades that I'm neglecting being involved in the church and Bible reading? It's usually more a case of I'm overemphasizing one category and letting it dominate, and there's other work God wants me to do that I'm neglecting. Or are you justified? I can't be involved in ministry because I'm doing this other thing. And that might work for a short season in life. I don't, I don't think it can legitimately last for long. Um, I could be wrong. But um, again, going back to prayer, but you could also ask someone else's opinion. I mean, some people I read about in church history, they work too much. But God has a tendency of sidelining you when you do that. Like Charles Spurgeon, I read his autobiography. The guy preached like five times a week, taught pastoral theology classes, was the published a Baptist newspaper every week, did like eight other things. And then about every five years, He'd just get so weary and tired, he had to go sit by the sea for four months. It's like God says, Sabbath, you, now. You know? um, or these other people. I mean, there's these guys. No, now, when I was going to seminary, there were there some guys who'd read these biographies, and you read about them, like Jonathan Edwards sleeping four hours a night. I mean, I think Al Mohler does that now. There's a reason these people are dying in their 50s, okay? Um, no, I'm dead serious. And... And praise God for their faithfulness. No, Jonathan, Jonathan Edwards, by the way, the, the, his wife's, Jonathan Edwards' wife's biography is titled, Married to a Difficult Man. <laughs> Kid you not. And, and she's not complaining. She's a Puritan, and she's speaking about, no, it's been difficult, it's been hard. He would work in his study 12 hours a day. And Jonathan Edwards wrote some voluminous materials. Again, he's another one who died young. He died from a smallpox inoculation. He'd just become the president of Princeton. He wanted to show all the students, no, this is safe, you should do it. I got the smallpox inoculation and died. But 12 hours a day, the guy had 12 kids. And you have to wonder how he was able to fulfill his responsibilities as a husband, how he was able to fulfill his responsibilities as a father, when he's in his study working 12 hours a day. Now he's going to stand before the Lord, not me, but I look at that and I think that looks a little disproportionate. I don't know. 
Um, so, so how do you know if you're working too much? I think, again, you go back to prayer, and you go back to looking through what response, what has God called me to do? And God's called me to fill up my time with useful activity, except when I'm resting. And he's called you to the church, and he's called you to be a member of your family, and he's called you to a number of things. And if you prayerfully work through that and talk to people, you might find where some of those things are. But if, if you're basically saying, no, the Lord's equipped me for ministry, and I'm doing some ministry, he's given me these other things to do, they're good things to do, I think there's a freedom in that. But again, if you ask God, I think he'll tell you. I don't think that God's, God's not like that um, stereotypical... It's usually a woman, but I don't want to say it has to be a woman. If, you, if I have to tell you, if you ask, how does it work? It's like, you know, what's wrong? If I have to tell you, then you don't know. Right. If I have to tell you, then you don't know. I can't, yeah. You have to figure it out for yourself. I don't think God is in heaven. You have to figure that out for yourself, Anna. If you're saying, Lord, I want to please you, and do you want me to rearrange my schedule? Do you want me to shift where I'm placing my emphasis on things? You have to figure it out. For your, I don't think the Lord ever says that. So... Ask for wisdom and work yourself through. And the other question would be, you know, are you coming out of your rest refreshed? We read last week how um, the person who rests too much, the sluggard, actually grows more weary. So another test is, is my rest refreshing? Um, Or actually, does my rest weary me out? I mean, I think we've all come back from a vacation where you need a week off just to recover from the vacation. Um, So... We've all taken some time off, and like I need to rest because I rested too hard yesterday. Um, any any other questions that help? Um, I don't have a magic answer. I, I really don't have a magic answer. But God has wisdom. Dan. <laughs> Dan thinks that Edwards with twelve kids was hiding twelve hours a day. Yes, it's, it's, it's possible. It is possible. Um, yes? This is kind of off the subject of rest necessarily, but something you said about not hardening our hearts when you know, God is reaching out to us. Mm. It says both. It says absolutely both. Let's go there. No, you're absolutely right. It, it, God hardened his heart, and then it says Pharaoh hardened his heart, and then it says God hardened his heart. And it, absolutely both are true. Absolutely. I don't mean to deny the one by saying the other. They're both absolutely true. But where were you going with that? I just interrupted. Sorry. That's a hard concept. Yeah. Yeah. No, 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 no. Don't, don't take my word for it. Let's go there. Exodus. Um, and what I would say the Christian corollary is this. God tells you not to harden your heart. At the end of the day, it's the Holy Spirit who's going to help you, cause you not to harden your heart. But you're still told don't harden your heart. God, so yeah, go to Exodus, um, what is it? Seven. So God says flat out in Exodus 7, 2, you will speak all that I command you, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. But then in 7.22, the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret art. So Pharaoh, so Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. We don't know who did it there. But then you go to 8.14. And they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. This is all the frogs. What's, I'm looking at yeah, the frogs. Yep. But Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, and he hardened his heart. Um, but then you go down to 8, um, 19, when the magicians saw, said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened. So there's God hardening his heart. 
Um, and then in 832, Pharaoh hardened his heart. But then in 96, um, no, 97, Pharaoh went, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. There's God again. And then explicitly in 912, the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. So throughout the passage, both God and Pharaoh are said to harden Pharaoh's heart. And, it's, and I don't think they're taking turns. I think, I think Pharaoh's hardening his heart and God is hardening Pharaoh's heart is one and the same. Well, here, watch this. I'm going to lower this book. And I think God is withdrawing grace from Pharaoh. And so Pharaoh's doing what he darn well wants to do. And it's the grace of God that caused Pharaoh's heart not to harden previously. So you know what, Pharaoh? Your conscience isn't going to bug you as much tomorrow. And Pharaoh hardens his heart, and God's hardening Pharaoh's heart. It's not them taking turns. It's one and the same action. So anyway, that, that's it's a, no, it's a good observation. But uh, just, just like positively, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Get to work. Why? It's God causing me to will and to work according to his good pleasure. And so there's this mysterious coming together of the sovereignty of God and human action where Joseph can say to his brothers, you meant evil, God meant it for good. I'm working at my salvation, but it's God working. Pharaoh's hardening his heart, but God's hardening his heart. It's, it's, there's no conflict there. So yes, Pharaoh hardened his heart and God hardened his heart. Amen and amen and amen. Did, did I answer where you're going or did I just rant off for five minutes? Yes, yes, it was a rant. Okay. Well spoken, well spoken. Okay, sorry. Any other, any other, you got to call me on it. I can do that. Um, you don't need to say amen, Alyssa. I did, but I just shook my head. Yeah. Okay, yes, Elsa. Oh, yeah. Yeah, some of us, some of us work with our minds and, you know, if I, especially when I'm Friday, when I'm staring at a computer screen trying to get my notes to fit on one page, I, I, my head will be spinning at the end. That's a, there's different types of work. There's the physical manual labor work. There's work with the mind and there's rest for the body and there's rest for the mind. One of the reasons why I like board games, if you ever come to our house, we like all these sort of European board games. Give me a little puzzle to set my mind on and actually I find something restful about it. Give my mind something to sink his teeth into that's not like a life or death problem. Give my mind something to work on, and I can find a certain relaxation and rest with that that I don't get if my mind has nothing to set itself upon. Give my mind something small and yet a little puzzling to set itself on for an hour or two, and there's rest I get out of that. And not everybody. Some people drive them crazy. The last thing they want to do is push little wooden cubes around on a board. But, but for me, that, that's restful. Um, that's restful, mentally at least. Um, for other people, it's TV. Hey, stop thinking about your life. Think about Friends or Seinfeld or whatever. You know, I don't even know what's on TV anymore. <laughs> I, I don't. What? Okay. Very good. Um, what? Great British. Okay. Any other any other thoughts or questions about rest? Did did that? What we, what we did this morning when we tracked the theme, I, I didn't say this this morning, there's, there's, a, there's biblical theology and there's systematic theology. And what we did this morning was biblical theology. And they're both good. It's not like one's bad or good. Um, systematic theology, which is generally what our study has been in this class, maybe I'll transition into our study in the Holy Spirit this way, 
the fundamental difference between systematic theology and biblical theology is that systematic theology is atemporal. It ignores the time element. So it simply asks a question. What does the Bible say about sin? Jesus. Um, the wrath of God. What does the Bible say about holiness? What does the Bible say about covenants? And you're just going from Genesis to maps, and you're looking for anything that talks on that topic. Thank you, Simeon. That was very kind. Um, and that's systematic theology. And, and the, the, the advantage of systematic theology is it's exhaustive. You're, you're every verse, okay? But the Bible wasn't written in, at one place in time. It was written progressively, right? And so what you miss from that is the time element. What was crucial, we saw that in Hebrews, the argument of the author of Hebrews is hinges on if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of rest so many years later. Do you see how the chronology for the author of Hebrews is crucial? He's addressing the question, was the rest in the land the final rest? It can't be, because after they attained that, God's still talking about rest. And there's still this warning of, be careful, lest you fail to enter into his rest. And that's meaningless unless the land wasn't the final rest. And so a biblical, the a biblical theology study would ask a question like, um, let's see how the book of Exodus develops the doctrine of God as a savior. How does the, and that would be that would be moving chronologically. So how does how do the events of Exodus take the ball from where Genesis got it, and where does, where do they move it to, or um, it, this type of thing we did this morning, tracking the movement. It's the same thing with temple, and and it's important for us to see these these threads. There's about maybe twenty or thirty key themes that run through the Bible. Things like priesthood, sonship, covenant, atonement, um, that get, you track intercessor. Um, that you track through Scripture. And it, tracking the development is crucial. Tracking the order is, is, is crucial. Um, and so that's what we're doing this morning, is a biblical theology on rest. Where does it start? Where does it end? It's kind of like what I was talking about with the temple. And it, it helps. The reason it's important is, if you see the tabernacle as a step on the way, heading to the new heavens and new earth, where everything is temple, because God is at, with man and there is no sin to be dealt with, then you're just going to be like, what, what do I care about the tabernacle? I'm never going to see a tabernacle. I'm never going to make a tabernacle. What do I care about these five or six chapters in Numbers? But if you understand how tabernacle is a step on this way and it's pointing somewhere and it's getting us to look somewhere, then I think when you're reading through Numbers, like, oh, okay, this is still significant. Just as when you read about the sacrificial system, you know it's pointing to Christ. And so we don't just rip our book of Leviticus out of our Bibles. Um, so anyway, that's what we're trying to do this morning. I, I don't know how I, well I succeeded in that, but the goal, and one of the reasons I brought the PowerPoint out was just there are so many passages to look at, is to try to track the movement through the scriptures and how, how the ball gets moved downfield. There's another sports analogy. That's the third one this morning. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. I've been sporting all morning. Yeah. Football. Move the ball downfield. No, field. Okay. Yes. That's this f fulfillment, yeah. Yeah, and you're right. As Americans, we take the rest way farther in the wrong direction. Yeah. That I don't think it's, this seems to be more about that than it does about sleeping and yeah. watching TV and playing yeah. games and all this stuff that 
Right, right. Well, yeah, this study has been cool for, for me, and this isn't something I figured out on my own. Guys at DA Carson and some other people did some great work on this that I'm piggybacking off of hugely. But yeah, realizing that, I mean, think about it. In a real sense, every time you have to go to sleep, it's meant to remind you there's a rest that God has he's inviting you to enter into in Christ. I mean, just think about that. Every time you go to sleep, is a gospel invitation. Hey, you need rest. God's got something to offer you. He says, hey, enter my rest. I mean, it's just cool to think of that. Um, you know, that next time it's, you know, anyway, I'm babbling now. Yes, Lois, thank you. There's probably cases in that ministry could be rest. So it doesn't have to be something non-spiritual related. Oh, no, no, absolutely not. In fact, I knew there was way too much content in here. Um, let me find this for you. Um, Paul talks about people coming and refreshing his spirit. One of the things we can do in fellowship is, is refresh one another, encourage one another, speak words to, of truth to one another. Um, it would have been under, under find your fellowship, it would have been like a subpoint under seek first your refreshment in the Lord. The subpoint would have been and his people. And so it would have been the Lord, his word, and his people. And I just, there's, we went five minutes late as it is. Um, so hold on, let me um, find that. Refresh. Re- Fresh, wild card, and hit, and it's um, Philemon, one, seven, and for Second Timothy, but let's go to Philemon, one, seven. For I derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. One of the reasons Paul loves Philemon is he's a guy who regularly refreshed the hearts of the saints. Um, or 2 Timothy 1.16, May the Lord grant mercy on the household of Anesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. What does that mean? He came and visit Paul in jail and offered him some encouragement, and Paul was refreshed. He was weary, sitting in a Roman dungeon. And then, and a, uh, what's it, how do you pronounce his name again? Um, Anesimus, Anesiphorus would come and, and encourage him and offer refreshment and encouragement. And I don't think he's saying he brought a snack tray with him, although I'm sure there was some food, but he, he was offered refreshment. So, so this is absolutely something we can do to one another. Um, and Second uh, Corinthians 7 as well. Besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. Corinthian church, we're encouraging and refreshing. Um, in some senses, that's what you guys are doing in Pastor Appreciation Month. There's a, those letters of encouragement, there's a refreshment, there's a reinvigoration, there's a, any weariness that might have been around that day, there's a removal of it through the encouragement. I, I think you guys get that, right? So absolutely, um, refreshment and rest doesn't have to be TV um, by any stretch of the imagination. Any other thoughts? Yes, Simeon. Mm. How does how does the idea of rest in the Word and rest in personal study? Um, differ. It's, it's subtle, but it's significant. I can spend hours in the Word working on a sermon 
without, it's the difference between coming to worship and coming to learn. And learning's great. And you can sort of, and you can mingle back and forth. There are times where I'll see something glorious in the Word, and I just, wow. Um, but I'm oftentimes wrestling with the text. I've got to figure this out. I gotta, how does the text flow? How does it work? And in the back of my mind, I need to hand in something to Renee on some Friday morning at 1, or Lois for that matter. No, there's a ticking clock. There's a, there's a perpetual sort of Damocles over my... Yes, no, Damocles reference, no. In Greek mythology, there's a king, and he's got this sword sitting right over his throne that's hanging by a fraying rope at any moment it could drop. It's that feeling you have of something. In the, so, so basically, the only real time where I don't have this ticking clock is Monday. And by Monday evening time, the clock is ticking. And the clock that's ticking is, am I going to have notes to give Renee on, on Friday morning? And, uh, and so I know I've got to be moving. And so I'm constantly throughout the week aware of where I am in my sermon prep. And if something comes up, or if I have to deal with a bunch of things one day and I get behind, I gotta make up. And, you know, anyway. Um, and so there's an element of work, and it's good. It's good to work in the Word. But there are other times, um, I was just doing this the other day with a friend of mine, we were just reading through John, um, some, some of the aspects in John. It was just refreshing, it was a joy. So I think it can be both, and it's good as both. Wrestling through working in the Word, study to show yourself approved is not rest. You know? Um, and yet coming again and again and again to feed and be refreshed from Scripture is rest. So I, I, think, I think it can and should be both. Any other questions or thoughts? Or going once, going twice. It's, yes! Oh, the last moment. Did you... Yes, one's to set up the other. One is the shadow that anticipates the fullness. So the first step, so let me, let's just go over the order, if you look at the notes, is God setting a pattern of rest. Before there are people who need rest, God, well, actually, no, not before. But Adam and Eve just got made, and God's the first person to take rest. And you're like, what on earth is that about? Is he tired? No, he's not tired. He's setting this pattern. And then we, as people, are made weak and frail. We constantly need rest. Beyond that, God establishes a day of rest. You will cease from your normal labor. So aside from your regular sleep rest, you have this day of rest. And then, as it delivers the people out of... of, So he's using different pictures. There's the picture of just my sleep. I need to lie down and be unconscious now, you know? and there's this picture of, and here's a day that I set apart. And then here's this land of rest, okay? And all of that ultimately culminate, all of this, our need of rest, and the rest that we get ultimately God is the giver of. He gives us rest, even in the, uh, even in, go to Psalm 127. Yeah, there's so many other stops on rest we could have jumped to, but... Um, is it 28, 7 or 28, unless the Lord builds a house? 127. 127. Thought so. Okay. Um, unless the Lord builds a house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over a city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go to late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives his beloved sleep. God is the giver of rest, even sleep. 
And, and the point being, it's the peace that God's giving that enables the person to sleep because these people are anxious and afraid. They're not. They're tossing, turning their beds. They're not sleeping. Um, so, so the, all I'm saying is the point is again and again and again, whether it's God inviting them into the land, come in, it's my land, come into my land and I'll give you rest. Whether it's God saying, hey, join me in my Sabbath and take a day off one in seven. Or whether it's God giving his beloved sleep. What we see again and again is I need rest and God gives rest. And then Jesus shows up and he says, come unto me all you who are weak and heavy laden and I will give you rest. All of that's meant the ultimate picture of the... So it's not saying it's spiritualized. We really do need sleep, and we really do need rest, which is why after my first two points were basically be a Christian and stay a Christian, now what do I do with the fact that I still need rest? Because <laughs> the shadow is still here to an extent, right? Um, so even though it's ultimately pointing towards the gospel rest in Christ and the, the eschatological rest and non-rest, that ultimately all people will either be in a place of rest or a place where there is no rest, that's where it's ultimately headed. I'm still needing rest along the way. And that's where the second half of the second half came in of, okay, ask God for wisdom, seek your rest first in him, and then enjoy God's creation. But all of the different places of rest are meant, I think, to point us to the rest. Um, did that, was that just a long answer, or did that help at all? <laughs> okay. No, no, fair enough. And that's the type of connection I'm trying to make, because you, you can sometimes miss... If something's pointing somewhere, it still is the thing, is there. So even while the sacrificial system was pointing to Jesus, before Jesus came, they were still offering goats and animals. And we're still needing rest. Uh, and Paul, even speaking of his soul being refreshed. Um, so, well, that's a good question. Okay. Penny Braun. <clears throat> I think I think they did. God rested before the fall, and um, and it, it's hard for us to piece together exactly what happens when God would come and they heard the sound of God walking or coming in in the garden. But um, I, I I don't think they were one of twenty four hour activity either. Um, I, I just don't know. We can guess in there how much that is. Oh God! God put Adam asleep to make Eve. There we go. The first anesthesia in the Bible. Um, will there be sleep in heaven, the eternal state? I doubt it. But I don't know. What? I know. No, I know. But it's not because he's tired. Now, there's, we'll, here's the question. In our resurrection bodies, will our bodies grow weary and tired and need to go unconscious every couple hours? I can't get dogmatic on the point. I think not. Um, but... What Jeremy Kidder thinks you can sell for a nickel, that, I mean, or less. It's, it's, it's not authoritative. It's not, it, it doesn't, it would seem to me un, inconsistent with the theme of the resurrection, but I don't know. Um, I know that the eschaton, it's weird, in the eschaton, we will be doing work, but I don't think it'll be laborious, so it can speak of enter into your rest, you know, um, like it did in Revelation 14. So, will be active in rest. <laughs> well, and you even get you even get the I didn't have time to deal with this either. Hebrews four, strive to enter his rest. I gotta work hard at entering into his rest. There's there's work to be done to enter God's rest. I mean that that there's even a sort of paradox there. What? 
Well, I had, yeah. Yeah, I had a, well, I had a whole, yeah, I had a whole analogy I was going to use, but I just ran out of time. You guys know this from when someone's drowning, right? Um, what's the number one, th- what's the number one danger when you're trying to rescue someone from drowning? They're going to drown you. Because even though they know you're there to help them, it is so hard for them to relax and let you save them. They want to flail their arms and kick and contribute to their salvation, and they drown. Abner got stuck. He's not here. Good, I can tell this story. I was, Serena's like, can you tell this story in the sermon? He'll be embarrassed. It's okay. Um, Abner, you guys go to Al Ostrander's house, that big, awesome tree house Al's got there? <laughs> Abner showed it the first time. He climbed right up to the top. When it came time to come down, he wasn't so eager. Um, so Daddy goes up to get him. Abner, I'm going to put your arms around my neck. I'm going to put my arm around you, and we're going to climb down. And he was just scared. And he, he, there's a sense in which, dude, son, rest and obey. Put your arms around my neck. Hold on tight. I've got this. And that, that, I'm sure, was hard work for him to do. And so Jesus says, I will be your righteousness. I will deal with your problem with God. Rest. And we say, yeah, but I, you know, and every time you feel, okay, here's, let me put it this way. If you've been faithful and if you witnessed to four people in a day and you read your Bible, you come to the end of your day, do you feel more confident in coming before your father's throne of grace in prayer than you do the day where you lost your temper and you um, you know did things you shouldn't do and on that day do you feel less capable of coming before your father no, you're coming before the throne to confess your sin no doubt but do you somehow feel that you have better access more immediate access when the day you've been good if you do to some degree you're trusting in your works my works give me access to God. My work, make no mistake, you should feel guilty and you should need to confess your sin, but boldly come before God's throne because of Jesus to confess your sin and be restored. If, if, you, if you, and I, we all wrestle this, we're hardwired for works, we're hardwired to think when I've done good, then I can boldly come before God. When according to, go to Hebrews 4, according to Hebrews 4, the command to boldly come before God in prayer does not say, boldly come before the Lord in prayer so that when you've done a good job and you're, you're a good little doggy, then you can't. That's not what it says. Hebrews 4. And it's all about, all about Christ and who he is. Verse 14. Since we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Now, it's all because of Jesus. It's not, for you've been a good little doggy today. It's all who Jesus is and who our high priest is. Let us then with confidence draw near the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help. When? When you've been good? In time of need. Submit to you, when do you need grace more than when you've just failed? And whenever you feel more comfortable coming before God or less comfortable, this whole consider who your priest is flew out the window, and you're considering how you've done. My access to God isn't based upon my priest. My access to God is based upon my performance. And we got to fight 
to rest in Christ every day of our lives because we're hardwired to link back to the merit system. We're hardwired to go back to it again and again and again and again and again. And that's work to remind yourself of that. And it's work to be trusting in that and not, oh, I'm trusting my works again. Okay. You know, and that's, that's the work of, of a resting in Christ. Um, now, does that make sense, sort of? That's, that's more, I mean, do you guys get that struggle, though? I mean, yeah, you, you trust Christ and his work, but then you start trusting in yourself again. And then you, then you catch yourself doing that, and, you go, and then you go back. Um, okay, any other thoughts or questions on that before we... Okay, back to the Holy Spirit going once. Yes, Penny. Okay. Okay. That's what I'm seeing. That sometimes we struggle so much to just hold on, and God just wants to hold us, and that to me is where the rest comes. From. Well, th- my struggle is the struggle to put Christ before my face. The struggle is with all the flashing lights and all of the things this world has that want to make me look away to keep him front and center. I, 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 there is, there's biblical truth to I. Paul says, I want to lay hold of him who's laid hold of me. And so there is a sense in which I want, to, I want my faith resting upon Christ, and I'm taking hold of Christ by faith, and I need to make sure I'm doing that. Um, but primarily, what the, the task there is to put that truth in front of my eyes and to ask for God's help to do it. It's not like I can just sort of grit up my teeth and take hold of Christ by faith. Um, faith itself is a gift of God. So, so yeah, I mean, what I'm trying to avoid, there's a balance. Have you ever heard of Keswick theology? Keswick theology has that popular mantra, let go, let God. We don't want to do that. We don't want, no, no, and you're not saying that, but where you're getting me sort of cautiously is, is it's not simply let go, let God. Trust in Jesus, take care of it. And, and you push that to its logical conclusion, and it becomes lawlessness. Um, I'm not going to work at, you know, and, and, and it sounds great when it's small sins. Like, instead of trying to fight your anxiety, just leave it to God. How does that work for the guy who beats his wife? You know, I don't want you to stop beating your wife like a legalist. That'd be legalistic if you stop. You, know, you just got to wait till God moves in your heart. No, no one says that. Um, and so there's a very real sense in which we are striving and, and, and fighting by faith to cast down strongholds. And yet Paul's insisting that while we're doing that, God's doing it. So I guess what it really comes back to is why are we doing what we're doing? Am I... Okay, I was talking to someone the other day. Say you don't want to go to church on Sunday morning. What do you do? There's two things. I suppose there's three things you can do. You can just not go to church. That's one option, right? But there's two ways you can go to church. The first is, well, it's my duty, and I'll do it. And in that line of thinking, and for those of you who ever heard John Piper teach before, he, he really pushes against this, you almost start to think that when you obey and don't want to, it's more meritorious. It's better. I mean, I went to church today and didn't even want to. Now, pushing that to its logical extremes, I worship God today and I don't even love him. I can't even stand the guy. That's how, that's how righteous I am. I worship a God that I think is repugnant. Push it to its logical extreme, right? And you realize, no, that's not good. 
But there's this note of thinking that if I just make myself do it, if I just get up and go and I'll help, I don't want to help in the water, but I will, that's how good I'm, that it's actually more meritorious because you didn't want to do it. Um, and so Piper's whole thing is like, no, no, that won't fly. Yes, we need to develop self-discipline. Yes, we need to be able to make ourselves do things we don't want to do, but we can't live there. You know, the husband who helps his wife when he doesn't want to is a good husband. The husband whose marriage is that is a miserable husband. My entire life, my entire marriage, I never once wanted to help this woman, but I did my duty. It's terrible. Now, we need that ability in the stopgap. When I go home and Serena's like, can you help me in the kitchen? I'm like, oh, good grief. No, I need. So so then how do you go to church when you don't want to go to church? You don't go thinking, I'll do my duty. You confess your weakness to God. Scripture, we read Psalm 95. Come, let's sing to God. That should be my heart attitude. Lord, my heart is not delighting at the prospects of worshiping and gathering with your people, and I'm sorry. Um, it clearly, I'm not seeing something right, or my heart's corrupt, but my heart's not there. Now, Lord, I believe you want me to go, so I will go. But in my going, would you please work on my heart? Help me to sense, get a taste of that joy of Psalm 95. And you're not going, I did my duty. You're going in weakness. And I think that's a very different way to obey. You're trusting, and I, I can't do this. You can do it for me. I'm going to believe you, and I believe you say this is good for me, and I believe that you've said this is where I'm going to find encouragement. So I'm going to go. But Lord, would you, would you work in my heart? Could you carry that load? Could you do this for me and help me to see this by sight, what I'm reading in the Word? Um, I, I think those are two... I think that subtle difference is crucial in how we obey. Are we going out racking up merit for a fictitious treasury of merit? Or are we going out in faith, resting and trusting in God? Okay, if God doesn't show up with the strength and the power, I'm going to fall down because I'm weak. But I'm trusting and resting in him to do it for me. That, that's the difference. But you're not just sitting on your couch going, I'll just let Jesus do it all, you know, either. That, that's, I'm trying to avoid both extremes. Does that make any sense? Okay, okay. Anything, we got back to the Holy Spirit in eight minutes. Okay. Um, any other questions? Okay, back to the Holy Spirit. Here we go. We will we'll crack this apple. Who needs a handout? Um, Alyssa, would you be so kind? Thank you. Okay. So, by way of review... What does the word baptize mean? Baptize is a transliterated word. Instead of translating the word, they simply took a Greek word and spelled it with English letters. The Greek verb is baptizo. Anyone know what baptize means? To dunk, dip, or immerse. So when Paul's ship was shipwrecked, it was baptized into the water. The reason why this is an important point to make is we only ever use the word baptize in a liturgical worship Christian religious sense. Greek verb, baptizo, standard word, ships get baptized. You know, it's just dunking, dipping, right? So what helps understand this is getting some of the sort of spookiness off of it. We're being dipped by or in. The Greek preposition can mean both, right? Yes? Okay, I think my Greek students should know this now. Baptized by or baptized in the Holy Spirit. Dipped, immersed, in by with the Holy Spirit. Um, so let's go to Acts 10.
because it's predicted, right? John the Baptist says, I baptize with water, but one is coming who will baptize in or with or by the Holy Spirit, okay? And Acts 10 and Acts 11 is where it's most explicitly stated with Cornelius, okay? I'm in Luke 10 because I'm a moron. Here we go. You got to cut that out of the tape. Um, Okay, Acts 10. Peter gets a vision about a sheet coming down from heaven three times, and the Lord says, arise, kill, and eat. And Peter says, oh, no, far be it from me, Lord. And eventually he gets the point. God says, no, don't call him clean when I've called clean. And a couple things are being accomplished here. One is making it clear the dietary restrictions of the Mosaic law, he's freed from them. But most importantly, the implication is the Gentiles who you think of as ceremonially unclean, they're not unclean. My gospel can save them too. And so, verse 34, Peter opened his, so God sends him down to Cornelius, the Gentile, God-fearer and his family. Peter opened his mouth, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is accepted by him, to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Christ Jesus, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened through all of Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit, with power, and went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in his name, in him, receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. The believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gifts of the Holy Spirit were poured out on the Gentiles. For hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God, then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Key there, just as we have. And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. A couple things to point out here. One, Water baptism is the sign that correlates to the Spirit's baptism. And they're not the same event, and they do not necessarily take place at the same time. Okay? There are some churches that teach, in fact, the Church of Christ frequently teaches in many of its places, that baptism is the event when the baptism of the Holy Spirit occurs. It's called baptismal regeneration. And I think Cornelius is probably the clearest example, no. Because we know the Holy Spirit fell upon him before he was baptized by water, right? You with me? Now, how do I know that this is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? The reason I picked this passage is go a chapter later when Peter goes back to tell the guys in Jerusalem what happened. Okay? Acts 11, verse 15. Peter is now reporting what happened in Acts 10 to the Jerusalem council in Acts 11. As I began to speak, verse 15, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. Notice that this is continuity. 
There's not a distinction. The same thing that happened to us Jews happened to the Gentiles. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. They glorified God, saying, the Gentiles, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. And you see how Peter explicitly identifies what it is that happened. So here's how we know what happened to Cornelius and also what happened to them from the beginning was the baptism of the Holy Spirit. P- Peter quotes Jesus, I will baptize the Holy Spirit, and says, that's what happened. You with me? Okay, get me so far? So we know that what we just saw happen to Cornelius was the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Okay? That's just the first step. We, only, we may have to stop there. So um, I'll try to make one more step. Um, so it is that being dipped or immersed or surrounded in or by the Holy Spirit. Go to 1 Corinthians 12. Make one more point. And I'm, I haven't even begun to deal with this, these sticky issues of the question yet. I'm just trying to lay a foundation. Where do we know it happened? It's, it's, it, we know it's Cornelius. And by implication, we know it's Acts 2. Because that's what Peter's referencing it from us at first, Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit fell upon them. 1 Corinthians 12. Okay. Verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in or by or into one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all made to drink one spiritual drink. Peter, Paul is assuming that all Christians are baptized by or into the Holy Spirit, into the body of Christ. We all. You get that? The next thing I want to try to establish is there isn't a two-tier, and we'll have to deal with this next week, there is not a two-tier versions of Christians. Baptized in the Spirit Christians and non-baptized in the Spirit Christians. According to 1 Corinthians 12, if you're not baptized by the Spirit, you're not part of the body of Christ. I would submit to you, if you're not part of the body of Christ, you're going to perish. Yes. Now, immediately, immediately, someone's going to say, what about the Samaritan believers in Acts 6 and 7? What about them? And that's where we'll go next week. So I'm arguing the baptism of the Holy Spirit is what happens to Cornelius, what happens to Peter, and it happens at salvation. I'm arguing that. And I know I've got some text to deal with. And next week, I'll bust out the... Because uh, this is where we're going to break, break paths with some well-meaning brothers and sisters who we love, but the Assembly of God's statements of faith goes completely opposite direction. And I'll read that for itself so we're not making a straw man and say, okay, we love these guys. We'll see them in heaven. This is something I think we disagree with and why. So we'll pick it up next week. So that's the first, as far as we've got on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And next week we'll try to deal with the controversy. Okay. See you all this evening at our feast. <laughs>